Hello, welcome to this week's A Screen Jiggle Podcast. It's the first one for 2021, so Happy New Year. It's getting a bit late to say that, but we'll say it anyway. So Happy New Year to uh, to all our listeners and to you, Tom Beasley. Yes, hello. Happy New Year, everyone. If, what you know, how long does it feel this year already? <laughs> I know, we're, we're not quite at the end of uh, January yet. That's it. Yeah, people keep saying what a year this month has been, and, and I kind of I agree with that. Yes, uh, we've got a few new releases to talk about this week. There's a couple of uh, uh, Amazon Prime releases, uh, some streaming stuff, and I believe one film is in cinemas, whatever cinemas uh, are still open. But we're going to kick off with The Rental. It's on uh, streaming on Amazon Prime Video now. Directed by Dave Franco and written by Franco and Joe Swanberg. Uh, Swanberg's a uh, director I've always enjoyed. Uh, it stars Dan Stevens, uh, an actor I've always liked, Alison Brie, an actress I've always liked, uh, Sheila Van and Jeremy Allen White. They play two couples who rent an Airbnb house uh, out in the middle of nowhere for a weekend getaway and a strange thing starts to happen. There are cameras hidden around the house watching them, uh, there are secrets being kept. It's uh, quite a good little thriller. It turns into a bit of a slasher film towards the end and it turns it ends up having a very unconventional ending, which I did like. But for the most part, it's uh, a lot of it's fairly conventional, but still good with some great performances from uh, some good people. What did you think, Tom? Yeah, it's Franco's first outing as a, as, as director, and it, it it does feel like that. Um, there are some really interesting things about it. The, the, the very first thing you see is um, the the Dan Stevens character and the Sheila Vand character booking this sort of airbnb break and they're sort of in front of this computer going oh should we just do it should we go ahead and book it and so you immediately read them as a couple and so then it's a nice little reversal when um the jeremy allen white character josh comes in and it's revealed that him and mina are together um and so that instantly sets up quite an interesting dynamic and it's one that, that the film returns to over and over and i think that is really interesting um and i think that in fact the first hour of the movie is pretty interesting. It's very character-based. You know, these the creepy things are beginning to happen, but it is very based on these four characters and their sort of interpersonal relationships, and that I really liked. What I didn't like as much is when it settled into more conventional slasher horror beats. Um, there are some effectively creepy images. There are some decent scares. I do think the script um, by Franco and, and as you said, uh, Joe Swanberg, um, I think there's a lot of wit in it. I think there's a lot of um, well-observed moments in it. I think that's good. Um, but I do think that it becomes a little bit conventional. And I don't think that it capitalises on all of the threads it's set up. You know, certainly you find various things set up earlier in the movie and they pay off in ways that are some are eminently predictable and some just don't seem to come to anything. And so it feels a bit like it could have done with tightening up. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's something that, that will come. And I'd certainly, Dave Franco has suggested um, he might even be willing to do a sequel to this. Um, there's certainly a clear way there could be a sequel. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be against seeing it. Uh, but, yeah, I struggled with this in a lot of ways. I thought the, all of the constituent parts were sort of there. And I think the performances are great. I think Dan Stevens is uh, a lot of fun. Dan Stevens is doing that thing here that, um, I think there's a certain class of person who's almost too attractive to be trustworthy. And Dan Stevens fits into that perfectly because he's almost cartoonishly handsome. And so if he does something a little bit, you know, a little bit slippery, you buy it because, you know, someone that attractive can't be as nice as he appears to be. <laughs> uh, and so 
And so that really works. And I like his dynamic with, with Alison Brie and I like his dynamic with, with Sheila Vand. I think all of the performances are very good. Um, and I think when it's focusing on the people and focusing on the characters, it's a really well told story. But ultimately, when the, the kind of the genre cogs have to turn and it has to pay some of that stuff off, that's when it starts to suffer a bit. And, and so sadly, I was left ultimately a little bit disappointed. Yeah, I was slightly disappointed, but I thought, you know, for a debut, you know, directorial debut, it's uh, quite a good effort from uh, Franco. And uh, you can definitely tell there's uh, touches of Swanberg in the script. So all in all, uh, it's, it's worth a look. Next up, we've got Stardust, a biopic of David Bowie, uh, which sadly, uh, well, I have A, I haven't seen it, and B, I understand it uh, doesn't have any actual Bowie songs in it. The Bowie estate did not uh, allow the filmmakers to have the rights. It's directed by Gabriel Range and stars Johnny Flynn as Bowie. Uh, Mark Moran pops up as Ron Oberman, his US publicist, uh, and Jenna Malone plays Angie Bowie. Uh, and the film focuses on Bowie's first tour in the US in 1971 and his creation of the Ziggy Stardust character. Um, yeah, you've seen it, Tom. What did you think? Um, yeah, I take no pleasure in this at all. Um, I take no pleasure in the film because the film's bad. Um, but I also take no pleasure in kicking it because I love Johnny Flynn. I think Johnny Flynn is one of the best actors um, we've got at the moment. Um, I think him and Jesse Buckley together in Beast is just one of the best uh, double performances I, I've ever seen. Those two together, absolute dynamite. And Johnny Flynn has this very unique, almost sort of beast-like charisma and sexuality, which fits that role like an absolute glove, but does not fit David Bowie. I mean, you mentioned there that there's no David Bowie music in it, and that's the case. Um, but what's also the case is that the character Johnny Flynn is playing does not feel like David Bowie in any recognisable way. Um, it's very unusual. So it's it set up around this this US tour. It was um, when Bowie had released The Man Who Sold the World. Uh, he'd had success with Space Oddity, um, but The Man Who Sold the World wasn't selling as well, particularly in America. Um, and so the, the, his label in America uh, organised this supposed tour for him. When he gets there, he realises he doesn't have a work visa, so he can't play gigs. He's paired with this sort of hapless publicist played by Mark Maron. And they kind of get, it's almost like Green Book-esque, this sort of road trip across America they go on. Uh, and all the time, uh, Bowie's making phone calls back to Angie, played by Jenna Malone. And her role, you know, Jenna Malone is great, but her role is just to shout and get increasingly more pregnant as the story goes on. And that's a really kind of sad state of affairs for her. She deserves far better. As you say, that the lack of the music is such a big problem because we're supposed to watch this movie with the, the feeling that Bowie is a misunderstood genius and that he will eventually get his dues. And we know that because we know who David Bowie is and we know the legend that David Bowie would become. But the movie doesn't do anything to convince you that, of that. The movie doesn't show you being a, him being a genius because it takes for granted that we already think that. You get this a lot in, in biopics of, of, of brilliant people where, I mean, most recently, in fact, we saw it in Mank, where the character of Mank is never really shown being brilliant. We're just supposed to assume he is because that's the setup for the story. Um, and so I had that problem again here. Um, I think Johnny Flynn, sadly, you know, he's sort of hamstrung by the ridiculous hair and the ridiculous fake teeth and the accent. 
and it's all set up, you know, from the title to the plot summary is supposed to be this is how David Bowie realised he needed to become Ziggy Stardust and become this character to, to go to the next level of, of, of stardom. But you don't really feel that. It, the, the second half of the movie, it almost works when it's doing the road trip stuff, but the second half of the movie, it sort of brings in this idea that part of Bowie's persona is constructed as a result of his fear that he will suffer from um, the schizophrenia that is in his family and and that he's worried about the fracturing of his mental state. But that's it's not dealt with particularly sensitively and it's introduced very late in the day, doesn't really hold much water, and then it gets very abruptly from that to him becoming Ziggy Stardust. And then he goes out on stage and he performs this song, which is not uh, not a great Bowie song, but but something else. And you... And so it doesn't, you don't get that moment. It's not like, you know, whatever people think about Bohemian Rhapsody, the film, the moment that you see that Live Aid performance at the end and Rami Malek is doing that pitch perfect impression and you've got the, the, the Freddie Mercury vocals, which they sort of tinkered with and added a bit of Rami Malek and a bit of someone else. And what, when you see that sequence, whatever you think about the rest of the film, it's that's almost a transcendently brilliant sequence i was weeping through that live aid performance in bohemian rhapsody because i'm such a huge queen fan i had reservations about the rest of the film but i could not fault that scene at all whereas with this you don't get that moment because they're not allowed to use the music so it just sort of fizzles and you never really get the moment of oh yes now he's ziggy stardust now he's david bowie now he's the man that would become this enormous movie legend so you don't you don't really get any of it you know you don't believe he's this rough diamond at the start you don't believe he's this polished performer at the end you just don't buy any of it and it's not johnny flynn's fault it's the the project is sort of misguided to begin with and then it's not executed in a a strong enough way to to get past that so i think that for for bowie non-fans it's quite baffling in a lot of ways uh, and for Bowie fans, I think they'll probably just be angry. Uh, and I don't think that leaves either group happy. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not on my to-watch list at all. Uh, you know, If I'm going to watch a David Bowie biopic, I want a David Bowie biopic. I want his music. Because he was yeah. he was a singer-songwriter first and foremost. You know, he was a marvellous artist in many, many ways. But first and foremost, he was known for his music. And I think a film about Bowie without his music... It's a non-starter for me, and I know it's the same for a lot of people. Yeah, such a shame. Uh, next up, One Night in Miami, which we spoke about when it was shown at the uh, London Film Festival last year, directed by Regina King. The story of uh, four quite well-known black blokes who uh, get together for One Night in Miami. It's, it's a fictionalised account of their meeting. Um, we won't speak much about it, but um, it's worth pointing out now that it's available on um, Amazon Prime, I believe available for streaming uh, and it's very very good that the four uh, four blokes involved are Malcolm X, uh, Cassius Clay who later became known as Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown and Sam Cooke. Tom, great little film this one. Yeah definitely it's one of those things that and I think this is obviously going to happen a lot this year where big Oscar winning as this inevitably will be films are just going to appear quite quietly on streaming services. Certainly this year Netflix is kind of in charge you know you've got um, you've got Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and The Five Bloods and 
various kind of uh, inherently Oscar-winning things just dropping on Netflix. Um, I think we're going to talk about Malcolm and Marie next week with Zendaya and John David Washington, and that's certainly going to be in the awards contention. Um, and then over on Amazon Prime, you've got One Night in Miami. You know, uh, Regina King seems almost certain to get a Best Director nomination. I think all four of the main cast members are, are up for Best Supporting Actor, so I'd be surprised if two of them aren't nominated, at least, to be honest with you. Um, the performances are so good. Um, particular praise, I think, to uh, Kingsley Benadir, who is a British actor uh, who plays Malcolm X in the film. I think he's fantastic. Um, I think Leslie Odom Jr. is just magnetic as, as Sam Cooke, and he gets to use that incredible singing voice that, that Hamilton fans will know well. I think it just works beautifully. You know, it is a chamber piece because it's adapted from a play. Uh, it's by um, Kemp Powers, who... Uh, adapt his own play here he also co-wrote the pixar film soul uh, which came out at christmas so it's a great kind of few months for him it's a tremendous script and regina king has this real eye for direction that's unshowy but is still dynamic you know she's an actor obviously and so she gets these great performances out of her actors and yeah i just loved it um i can't wait to watch it again actually i haven't seen it since um october when when the london film festival happened but I'm very excited to uh, get back into it, particularly having seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom over Christmas. And that's a film that, much like One Night in Miami, is about um, uh, black creatives and the way that the predominantly white establishment takes their material um, and, and kind of uses it in their own way and for their own ends. So I think that they are really good companion pieces to each other. And the fact that they are both looking good in the same oscar season is uh, really an incredible thing you know i was writing about this the other day and i was just thinking you know this oscars oscars so white is going to be so far in the background we we are theoretically in a situation this year where the majority of the acting nominees could well be people of color and that's just incredible to think that after where we were only a year or two ago and it's you know it's not before time Honestly, you no, mentioned not. yeah, you mentioned those two great performances, and I agree they're wonderful. But my favourite performance uh, in this film was Eli Gorey as Cassius Clay. I thought he he captured uh, his showmanship uh, perfectly. Brilliant film, Absolutely. brilliant film. Amazon Prime, well worth a look. Uh, next, we got a little Kiwi rom com called Baby Done, starring Rose Matafeo and Matthew Lewis, uh, directed by Curtis Fowle and written by Sophie Henderson. Tom, tell us all about it. Yeah, and any comedy from New Zealand, you sort of watch it and you find yourself asking, um, so when's Taika Waititi going to turn up? Uh, <laughs> he'll be in this. He'll be in this in a minute. And then he wasn't in it. And then at the end, it went executive producer, Taika Waititi. And I was like, there we go. I think, <laughs> there I think, we go. I think he's now basically in charge of the New Zealand film industry. <laughs> Peter Jackson Peter Jackson ran it for a while, but now Taika is in charge. <laughs> I think so. Um so yes, it's it's a film about the the sort of pressure on people in their twenties and thirties to to settle down and and have family. Uh, we meet uh, Zoe, played by Rose Matafeo, this who's a, a brilliant comedian. Uh, UK audiences will know her from being on various panel shows. She was on a series of, of Taskmaster. She's been on Eight Out of Ten Cats and uh, The Last Leg and all sorts of panel show type things. She's brilliant. Um, so she plays Zoe. Her boyfriend is tim played by matthew neville longbottom lewis uh from from harry potter 
And as the film begins, they are uh, tree surgeons and they're sort of thrill seekers as well. Uh, she's into competitive tree climbing and she's building up for this big national competition. Uh, all of their friends are kind of settling down and having kids, but they want to kind of experience more of the world uh, before they settle down in this way. Um, that decision is taken from them very early in the movie because Zoe finds out that she is already pregnant. Um, she initially tries to hide it from from Tim, but he, of course, soon finds out. And they are preparing to try and live as much of their life as they can in the time it will take uh, this baby to arrive. It's a very kind of light, very frothy film. Uh, there are moments of real kind of uh, emotional uh, potency, but really they're kind of they kind of play second fiddle to the comedy. Um, you know, anyone who's familiar with, with Tyker's work will know the sort of register of the comedy. I think uh, Curtis Val does a really good job. Um, uh, the screenwriter, Henderson, as you said, is um, uh, Curtis Val's uh, partner. So they're a real-life couple telling this story. And I think that comes through in how honest and how well-observed it is. It's not afraid of um, of the disgusting elements of pregnancy. It's not afraid of the more rough elements of a relationship and how these things can cause friction. Um, and it's performed so well. I think Rose Matafeo is an absolute star. Um, I can't wait to see her do more acting work because I think she really does well here, not just in the comedy, but in the, the emotion as well. She you know, really brings a lot to this movie. The character, it has to be said, is not particularly likable. Um, and certainly makes very, very questionable decisions throughout the course of uh, this movie. But the performance is is so strong that you, you go along with her, even though, you know, she's uh, she can sometimes make bad decisions. And uh, Matthew Lewis is very likable as Tim, kind of in contrast. He sort of uh, is happy to sort of accept the lot they've been given. And he's very excited to be a dad. And he it's a really warm performance from him. Uh, and so I really loved it. There are missteps. There are some kind of quite rushed and quite melodramatic twists um, in the in the final kind of movement of the movie. There's this strange comedy cameo by this guy, Nick Sampson, who plays um, uh, a guy online who's a sort of fetishist for pregnant women. Uh, and his involvement in the story never quite works in the way that it wants to. But as as a showcase for these two actors and as a... A refreshingly honest take on pregnancy and on becoming a, a parent. Uh, I, I found a lot to enjoy about it. It's a you know quite a small little movie, but I, I really hope people see it because it it caught me pleasantly by surprise. Yeah, it's always nice to see uh, a film from down under, whether it's from Australia or New Zealand, get a release in the UK. There should be more of them. There's a there's a, an Aussie film coming out next week that we'll be talking about on the next podcast. Yes, indeed. And you know, we, as, as much as we we sort of joke about Tyker, it's like that's. A lot of the reason why these films are getting a release is because you put his name on something and it, it gets it a release. Like, I think the, the poster, I think, for, for Baby Done has at the top, like, the producers of Hunt for the Wilder People and stuff like that on the poster because they know that people love those movies. People love Tyker's work. And so if his name is on it, people will go and see it. And, it, you know, it, it can only benefit the other people who are involved. Yeah, no, he's, a, uh, he's an incredibly talented bloke. Nothing but respect for Taika Waititi. Uh, finally this week, uh, a little bit of animated comedy uh, with a sci-fi twist to it. It's uh, Star Trek Lower Decks. It's just arrived on uh, Amazon Prime. It's the first animated Star Trek series to come along since the uh, animated version of the original series, which uh, came along in the 70s. There were a couple of seasons made back then. This one's brand new 
creation. Uh, it's uh, authorised. It's uh, basically from the people behind all the other Star Trek shows. So it uh, so it's canon. There there are references to all the other Star Treks and Star Trek characters, Kirk and Spock and Picard, etc. Are uh, are mentioned. It's all set aboard the starship Ceratos. It's set just after, basically after with the seven seasons of uh, The Next Generation. This takes place just after that. Uh, and it's basically about the uh, the junior uh, crew members who basically occupy the lower decks of the ship. Um, the two main characters are Beckett Mariner, voiced by Tawny Newsom, and Brad Boimler, voiced by Jack Quaid. Uh, there are a couple of ensigns uh, as well. There's uh, Devana Tendi and uh, Sam Rutherford. Uh, and the four of them are sort of the, the four main characters. So um, it doesn't sort of mock Star Trek, but it is very, very amusing. It's nicely animated. Uh, definitely not a kid's show. It's uh, for teens and upwards because it can be quite gory. The first episode has uh, a lot of the crew members turning into zombies and it's quite graphically gory. But uh, it's quite fun. Uh, back at Mariner, she's a bit of a rebel. She, uh, you, you learn early on that she's actually the... Uh, well, you learn in the first episode, she's the daughter of the uh, Starship's captain. But they're trying to keep that a secret. Uh, but she's sort of been moved from Starship to Starship. She seems to slack off, even though she's definitely quite a good Starfleet officer, with potential to be a good officer. Um, she just seems to enjoy slacking off. But it's, uh, if you're a Star Trek fan, uh, definitely worth a look. It's very amusing. Uh, lots of fun. I had a good time with it. And speaking of streaming, in the past week I've uh, enjoyed the third episode of WandaVision over on Disney+. Plus. Have you been watching that yet, Tom? I have. It's, uh, it's intriguing, isn't it? I'm enjoying it. The first two episodes were both in black and white and took the form of a 1960s sitcom. Third episode switches to colour and it's uh, firmly entrenched in the 70s. The, the house uh, in the third episode was definitely modelled after the house in the Brady Bunch. Uh, one of my favourite shows growing up. But it's got, uh, so it's got this sort of, it's modelled on sitcoms for sure. It's got the fake laugh track and everything else. But there's something weird going on behind the scenes. It's a very intriguing show. Uh, Paul Bettany and uh, Elizabeth Olsen are both very, very good playing uh, Wanda and Vision. And uh, I'm very intrigued to see where they're going to go. I'll be sticking with it. Um, yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's 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 loads and loads of fun. And those two, you know, I think both of them actually have been quite underserved uh, in the Marvel universe, just by the nature of the, the the size of the story, kind of forcing them out at times. And so it's great to see them get the chance to to be centre stage as they are in in this. Absolutely. And the other show I've been binging this week is uh, Superstore. A little uh, American sitcom I'd heard good things about, but that's now lobbed on uh, Netflix, and I'm. Uh, early on into season four now they've got the first five seasons on netflix and i've got to say it's a lot of fun if you haven't been watching it do check it out if you've got netflix stars america ferreira who was better known years ago was ugly betty uh but yeah setting one of these giant uh, department stores along the lines of a kmart or a target or a walmart uh but it's great it's all about the uh the staff of the shop so that's it for this week. So uh, enjoy whatever you stream. And if you manage to get out to a cinema, stay safe and wear a mask. And uh, thank you, Tom. And we'll catch you next week. No problem. See you next week.